0: Can't describe the grace of God, can you? Let me make one little thing before we get into the Word today, a little announcement. Tonight, homecoming night, we usually have a testimony service where we, have, we pick some people in our church that's been coming here for the last year or two years or so and uh, let them give their testimony a little bit so we can get to know them, how they met, if it's a couple, how they got married, how they found our church, how they found the Lord. And so forth. So, if you would come tonight and uh, you'll get to know some of the people that you're sitting next to that you may not know. We don't have but three, but uh, we're going to give them the chance to give their testimony tonight. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. <clears throat> I've always read from the King James Version, still do. Me, Peter, and Paul, just a few of us still do that. But anyway. Uh, I'm going to read from the, the NIV version. My daughter told me she said, "Dad, Solomon was a wise man, but he was complicated in the way he talked." And so she said, "These pe- everybody probably can't understand what you're saying." So I'm going to read it the NIV, and we'll, while we're with uh, Ecclesiastes, that's that's probably the version or the translation we'll go with. But let's read it together. Ecclesiastes 1, 6, 1 through 12. I've seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possession, and honor so that they lack nothing their heart's desire, but God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them, and strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial... I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning. It departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never, never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man. Even if he lives a thousand years, twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place? Everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. What advantage have the wise over fools? What do the poor gain by knowing how to conduct themselves before others? Better, what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Whatever exists has already been named, and what what humanity is has been known. No one can content with someone who is stronger. The more the words, the less the meaning, and how does that profit anyone? For who knows what is good for a person in life? During the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow. Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? I've entitled this Life's Dead End Roads. There's a game show on television called Family Feud where they ask different people, this this is one of the questions they ask, we ask a hundred people to tell us something that might be a dead end. And uh, the, the number four answer was, your driveway. Number two, uh, three answer was your hair. I've heard of split ends. I guess there's dead ends too in here. Uh, if it is, mine has died. Anyway, number 11, your job. But the number one answer was a road. There's other things that can be a dead end life. You can choose the wrong major and feel like you're going nowhere uh, in college. You can buy the wrong house And all you do is a money pit. You're just constantly putting something in it because it's falling apart. That can be a dead end. You can have dead end relationships. You can be with somebody that's not going exactly the same way you're going. And it seems like there's no future. Anybody that's ever pulled a trailer and backed up a trailer, you know it takes a little to get used to. Uncle Mike said he used to go to Cedar Key and watch people back their trailer in, uh, their boat into the, (laughs) the water. It was quite comical. It's not easy. I can't think of a worse thing, hardly, than to be pulling. Say you got your truck, and you're pulling a 16-foot trailer loaded down with stuff, and you're going down a dirt road, kind of got a few bends in it. You only got about a foot on each side, and you go about a half a mile to a place where you're going to use the lumber and stuff you got in your trailer, and it's a dead end. And you can't turn around. And you have to back that thing back for half a mile. My truck would be so scarred up, and the trailer would be wrapped around it. It would take me eight hours to get it back out of there if I had to back out something like that. Dead ends are tough. We've got GPSs; they tell you when you miss the road that they'll recalculate and get you there a different way. There's a lot of dead ends in life. Israel was on a dead end; they'd leave in Egypt, and there's the Red Sea. Praise God! God opened up the Red Sea for them, and they went on through. Prodigal son was at a dead end. He went to his daddy and said. Since you're not going to die, I want my inheritance now. And uh, give it to me, and he gave it to him, and he went out there and wasted on fast uh, women and and a lot of other things. Ended up in the pig pen. He went from eating steak to eating pig slop. He went from having a nice home to being homeless. He was at a dead end. He had to turn around and go back to the Father. They asked Jesus one time, or Jesus asked, one of the questions Jesus asked in John chapter 6, he, they were, he had already fed the multitude, and they were coming to follow him to see what else he going to feed them. And he finally turned to the multitude and he said this, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you don't have any part with me. And they said, boy, that's a hard saying. Many turned and walked away and didn't follow him no more. And he turned to Simon Peter and said, you going too? And he said, Lord, where can we go? You've got the words of eternal life. Dead ends, there's a lot of dead ends in this life. I want to look at three of them today that Solomon's going to bring to our attention. And you may have dealt with them or may be dealing with them today. First, dead end. Having wealth or riches without enjoying it. Being prosperous without enjoying it. Uh, let's read verses 1 through 6 one more time. I have seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor so that they lack nothing their heart's desire, but God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them. And strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless and a grievous evil. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he can't enjoy his prosperity, he does not receive a proper burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he comes without meaning. It departs in darkness, and in darkness his name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it's more rest than does that man, even if he lives a thousand years twice over but fails to enjoy his prosperity. Do not all go to the same place. Okay, first dead end, riches without enjoyment. If you don't enjoy your blessings, you don't enjoy your prosperity, what God's given in your life, it can end in discouragement. It discourages us. I was looking at last night, I've done a little over 220 funerals uh, in my life here in Williston. Ninety-five percent of them was with Knoff Funeral Home. That's been our local funeral home for all these years. Mr. Joe Knoth this is 35, 40 years ago, uh, when he was uh, there, after we would have the service, we would go to the cemetery for the internment and And uh, we'd have a prayer and uh, do the committal statement, and that was about it at the cemetery. And then he would come, and he would talk to the family that's sitting on the front row. Sometimes he'd kneel down and talk to them. Sometimes he would say, we've gone about as far as we can go. That was his phrase uh, forever. In other words, we've come to the end of the road here as far as the funeral home can help you. And that's all we can do. There's a lot of people... They are very discouraged in life, and they just don't know why. They just don't know where to go. I mean, I'm talking about some major people, Moses, Job, uh, Jeremiah, Elijah, Jonah, and on and on. These are people that, some of them wanted to die, wanted God to take their life. They were just totally, not only discouraged, they were depressed. Do Y'all remember, you may not, your parents or your grandparents remember it probably. October 29, 1929, that was called Black Tuesday. It's when they considered the Great Depression started in this country, where the stock market crashed and everything. Our president was Herbert Hoover. And he said in 1930, I think the worst is behind us. He was wrong. The worst was ahead of us. 33, 34, 35, some of those years were the very worst of the Great Great Depression. Actually, we didn't really come out of the Great Depression until World War II, really. Uh, But it took 27 years from where the stock market was, where it crashed, to 27 years before it got back up to where it was when it crashed. 50% of the children didn't have adequate food, shelter, or medical care. Many of them suffered from rickets. Before the Depression hit, there were 25,000 banks in this country and 11,000 went up, went down. Depression, discouragement. Here's what, here's what Solomon's saying. There's a dead end of wealth. In verse 2, let's go just look at verse 2. God gives some people wealth and possessions and honor so they lack nothing, their heart's desire. Man, they, they're, they're well taken care of. It. God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them. And strangers enjoy them instead. Now, verse 2, he's saying there's a lot of people that have been blessed, mightily, financially, prosper, you got everything, but they don't enjoy what God's given to them. Now, I'm going to give you four or five reasons why people don't enjoy their prosperity. Some, are, some don't enjoy it because they're greedy. You know why they don't enjoy what they've got? Because all they can think about is getting more. Their mind is just on more, more, more. Some people don't enjoy what God's blessing with because they're stingy. It's all, I'm afraid I'm going to lose what's mine. I don't want anybody to get it. I'm just hanging on. They're living in fear, and they're very stingy. Some people don't enjoy what they got because they procrastinate. I'm going to do it tomorrow. I'm going to start enjoying some things tomorrow, the next day, or whatever, and tomorrow may never come, and something may come and take all their wealth. And some people don't enjoy their wealth because it's an illusion. They're really not all that wealthy, uh, they're in debt, and they've done this. They're trying to live a life. uh looks like they're prospering, but they're in debt. One old boy said, I'm in debt so far, I can't even pay my light bill some of the darkest days of my life. Anyway, the power and pitfalls of money. I preached on that years ago. I have preached on money many times. We've talked about debt. We've talked about greed. We've talked about covetousness, tithing, giving, hoarding, saving, materialism, and on and on. A lot of people, I'm going to to talk about for just a few minutes something I've never talked about when it comes to money and and prosperity. Uh, A lot of people are waiting to the last fourth, the last quarter of their life to enjoy it. I've worked all my life, I'm going to talk about retiring for just a moment, uh, the history of retirement. Some people think like this, I'm just going to work until I die or until I just physically can't work anymore, and I think that's what we're here to do. Other people say, I've worked 35, 40, 45 years of my life. I'm going to spend the last years of my life enjoying something. I'm going to travel. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. Now, that's considered the American dream. What I wanted to look at is that in the Scripture, because I want to see, does the Bible say things about retirement? I've only found one Scripture that talks about a little bit about retirement. God told the priests in the Old Testament they could work so long, and then they had to get out of the priesthood. They couldn't do the sacrifices anymore. It's found in in Numbers chapter 8, 24 through twenty-six. Let me read it to you. He said, "This applies to the Levites. Men twenty-five years or old or more can come take part in the work of the tent of meeting, talking about the, tent, the tabernacle or the temple. But at the age of fifty, they must retire." from their regular service and, no long, and work no longer. They may assist their brothers in performing their duties at the tent of meeting, but they themselves must not do the work. This then is how you are to assign the responsibilities of the Levites. So the one time when I know God talked about retiring somebody, it was the priests and all the Levites that were working in the temple. Why did he tell them they had to stop when they hit 50? This is just speculation. Probably because... That was a tough job. It was a physical job. You're, you're handling sacrifices, big old carcasses of animals and doing that. And maybe he thought at 50 they, they maybe couldn't handle it anymore. And so he said, uh, maybe I don't have a clue, really, honestly. But I, I looked at what about retirement in America, people wanting to enjoy their life, their wealth or whatever. In 1880, late 1800s, half the people still worked on a farm in America. And then of course the Industrial Revolution was going on and things were beginning to change. People started moving to the city, working in factories and businesses and industry like that. And farming began to shrink down. We still farm, but it was in less and less hands. When you were a farmer, you just worked till you couldn't go anymore because you're working for your family, you're working for yourself, and you just if you didn't work anymore, it's over. Now their people are working for somebody else, another company, and uh, if they couldn't do their job, what did they do? And so here's what, here's what it is. They started coming up with this thing called retirement. John Hopkins Hospital, one of the founders, William Osler, he said in 1905, he said it's useless for men thir- 60 and older. They need to leave the workforce for the next generation. So they started talking about when you get a certain age, you need to get out of the picture. Okay. In 1875, American Express offered America's first employer provided retirement plan. The Baltimore and Ohio Railroad introduced the first retirement plan financed by the company. But they said you had to wait till you're 65. 1935, President Roosevelt, they come up with Social Security, which was kind of a safety net for the elderly, for the disabled, uh, the disadvantaged, the poor. People like that's what it was originally intended for, the unemployed. Uh, But you had to wait till you're 65 to get it, and the life expectancy wasn't but 58. So nobody got it, hardly. So they would take money out of your paycheck and put it in a pool to, to help take care of people when they get elderly. But uh, then all of a sudden, people started living longer. And now people live in their 80s. And now Social Security is going broke. And they're, they're thinking about trying to raise the age for you can get it up to 70, uh, but no politician deals with it because they think that'll, they will lose their seat. They won't get voted back in. And then Medicare came along in 1965 to help out with the health benefits. Anyway, in 1985, 10% of the people in our country over 65 worked. Today, it's almost 27% still have to work after they hit 65. Here were some facts about retirement. It's going to last probably longer than you think. You know, it used to be... We used to think, when I retire, i got 5, 10, 15 more years of life. You're probably going to have 20 or 30 more years of life. You don't want to run out of money before you run out of life. Uh, Most Americans are way behind on their savings. I told you 27% still work between the age of 65 and 74, and 10% are still working after 75. Things are getting much more difficult. So if you're waiting... To enjoy the benefits of life whenever you can relax that last 20, 30 years of life might not be. You better smell the roses along the way. You better enjoy your life while you're going to. Be a good steward of it. And you never, let me get this across, you never retire from serving the Lord. You might retire from your job and things like that, but we all still going to serve the Lord till the day we die. I'll read you my favorite scripture uh, about this, Psalm 71, 18. Here's what it says. Even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, my God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. That's why we need older people. We need older people in the New Testament to mentor the younger and to help them to understand and to grow in the things of God. So anyway, he's talking about people that are dead end because they've got things, they're prospering, but they never enjoyed it all along the way. Here's the second dead end, he says. Those that labor, but they never learn contentment. Verse 7 through 9. Everyone's toll is for their mouth, yet their appetite's never satisfied. Now, that's the lack of contentment. No matter what happens, they ain't satisfied with it. What advantage have the wise over fools? What do the poor gain by knowing how to conduct themselves before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This, too, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Okay, now he's going to talk about another group. The first thing, he talked about people that God had blessed or prospered or people that were wealthy and had money, but they never enjoyed it. Now he's talking about people that work, but they're never satisfied. They're never content. Uh, they're always wanting more. Now, there's nothing wrong with doing more, wanting to climb the ladder, uh, getting a better job, getting better pay, and things like that. There's nothing wrong with that, at, 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 per se. Uh but you've got to be careful. There's another biblical principle that balances that, and that's called contentment. You always want to strive to be your best and, and do the best for your family and all that. But there's also something called contentment. 1 Timothy 6.6 6 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Listen to this right here from a man named Jason Lehman. He said, It was spring, but it was summer that I wanted, the warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted, the colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It came fall, but it was winter that I wanted, the beautiful snow and the holiday season. And it was winter, but it was spring I wanted, the warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood that I wanted, the freedom and the respect. And it goes on and on. Then the last line is, Then my life was over, and I never got what I wanted. Now, that's a picture of... Discontent. You don't know where discontent first started? Go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God put Adam and Eve there and He said, Y'all eat of every tree here, just leave one away. And that's when they say, oh, We want that one. That began discontent. Henry Kissinger said it this way To Americans, a tragedy is wanting something very badly and not getting it. Here's what Solomon said a better, a greater tragedy is wanting something very badly and getting it and finding it empty. Contentment. Let me define contentment. Here's contentment divine. Uh, The best definition I've heard is it's the inner sense of peace from being right with God and knowing that he's in control of all that happens to me. Contentment. Let me give you some enemies. Here's some things that will take away your contentment if you're not careful in life. Four of them, unrealistic expectations. When, you, when I counsel somebody that's going to get married, I'm always cautious of this. Usually people are getting married nowadays in their 20s, later 20s, uh, sometimes early 30s. But a lot of young couples want what their 50-something-year-old parents took 30 years to get. And they want to start off with that and then build from there. Not Not good not going to work very well for you I had a call this week Pam gave me said somebody wants to talk to you give me the phone he said are you Pastor Smith I said yes I am he said I was referred to you by so-and-so I won't tell you the man's name I said yeah I know him he said uh, told me you could help me I said well I'll try I figured he's wanting marriage counseling and he said do you marry people I said yes I do and I was fixing to tell him my qualifications but I didn't say anything I I said this, uh you wanting to get married? He said, Yes. I said, When are you wanting to get married? He said, today. I said, uh uh-uh. uh. I said, I'm not married I ain't marrying you today. I said, I've got a counseling, I don't even know you anything. But he was wanting it and wanting it then. About like the old boy that called the insurance company and said, Do y'all sell homeowners insurance? It was a late Friday afternoon and they said, Yes, we do. He said, I'd like to get some for my house. Okay. Well, it's late today. We'll we'll get somebody out there. We can set you up an appointment for Tuesday morning. He said, well, I need to, I'd like to get it before Tuesday. He said, All right, well, let's see. How about Monday morning? He said, I'd like to get it before then. He said, when do you want it? He said, now my house is on fire. That's a little bit late to start trying to do something. But there's a lot of people expect a lot of things that are not realistic. Here's the second thing that, that'll lead up your contentment. Unfair comparisons. You know why people aren't content? Because they're competing they're trying to keep up with one another. They're trying to compare themselves to other people. How much does he make? How much do I make? What does he got? What am I going to get? I mean, especially men do that a lot. We're constantly comparing. The disciples did that too. I really believe James and John got their mama to go up there and ask Jesus if he could, have, if, if they could have the seat on either side of him. And Jesus said, no, "I can't do that. You know, I, I can't let you have it." And when the other disciples heard that, they were wanting the best place. It made them mad because they wanted that spot. And Jesus sometimes had to get on to them because they were arguing behind him and they were walking along the way fighting about who's going to be top dog. And he had to tell them, you want to be great in my kingdom, you're going to have to be a servant. You're going to have to humble yourself if you want to be great. You know. So anyway, unfair comparisons. is A lot of times people aren't content because we're trying to measure ourselves by other people. Here's the third thing that keeps people from being content. Unnoticed blessings. You've got to stop and think of how much you've already been blessed. You know, all we can think of because the news media and all and politicians say, what about them one percent, those billionaires, they need to pay more and all this kind of stuff. I'm gonna tell you something. Everybody in here, I don't know I don't know everybody's financial position what situation, but everybody in here, I can just about say you live better than probably six billion people on this earth. We live better than 90 percent of the people. We take so much for granted. I tell you what, when a hurricane comes through and knocks our power out for two or three days, man, it's frustrating, hot sweat, can't sleep, can't do nothing. We don't appreciate that stuff till it's gone. We ain't been praising God for electricity all that time and cold air. It's only when it's gone. We don't notice how we've been blessed a lot of times, so we're constantly wanting something more. You better, ta- you better take advantage and think about what God's already done for you. Uncontrolled ambition. Now, once again, God does not condemn ambition. People wanting to be better, wanting to move up the ladder and strive for excellence and things like that, pursue your dreams, that's good. But here's what James said in James three sixteen: For where you have envy and selfish ambition, selfish ambition, There you'll find disorder and every evil practice. You say, how can I tell if I'm discontent? I'm going to give you a little case. There's a lot of discontented people, and it gets manifest. A lot of times when we're discontented, we want something to change quickly. This is a true story. Uh, George Phillips of Mississippi he got up one night in the middle of the night to go to the restroom or get a drink of water or something, and he looked outside, and his light was on in his shed. And he saw some people moving around there, so he'd go up there and call the police. <clears throat> he said, there's some people burglarizing my shed. I'm George Phillips, and I live in such and such a place. Send somebody out here now. And the person on the other, at the police station said, we don't have anybody available right now to go. He said, What? He said, Well, you, all I can tell you to do is stay in your house, lock the door where they can't do anything, and we'll try to be there in the morning. We'll try to check fingerprints, see what they got or whatever, and we'll try to track them down that way. He was aggravated. He hung up. He thought for two or three minutes. He called him back. He said, Don't worry about coming here in the morning. I went out there and shot both of them. You can pick up their bodies in the morning if you want to. He said, within two minutes, there was five cop cars there with the lights, <laughs> flashing. <clears throat> and the police captain was very mad. He said he was very mad. They caught the burglars. <clears throat> but he said this, I'm very a- aggravated with you. You lied to us. He said, how? He said, you told us you shot those two guys. He said, well, you lied to me. You told me you didn't have policemen available. <laughs> so a lot of times, uh, <laughs> there's a will, there's a way to do anything. But let me give you... Two things that show that we're a society that's not very content. One, we got a lot of debt. People are in serious debt for many reasons, but one reason we're in debt so much is because we want what we want now, we'll pay for it later. I got to have what I want now, and I'll worry about paying for it later. Uh, A lot of times it's to keep up with the Joneses or whatever. There was a guy giving a tour of a college campus. This guy was wanting to be a journalist or a writer and think they were wanting to go to this college. And he came to a beautiful new building. He said, this is Hemingway Hall. And that student, uh, the student that was thinking of coming there said, are you telling me Ernest Hemingway, the great writer, my favorite writer, came to this school? He said, no, that's not Ernest Hemingway. That's Fred Hemingway. Oh, Fred Hemingway. Was he a good writer, too? Oh, yes, he was. He wrote the school $10 million check." Anyway, the, the, money can, can do a lot of different things in a lot of people's lives, but a lot of times we're in debt because we're not content. second thing that shows that we're not a very contented people is the high rate of divorce. If we ain't happy with what we got, we're going to look elsewhere. Let me give you just some scriptures about being content. You need to be content with the basics of life according to 1 Timothy 6, eight. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Wow. Luke 3, 14, this is John the Baptist talking now. Then some soldiers asked him, what should we do? Because he was telling them they need to repent, prepare the way the Lord was coming. He replied, don't extort money and don't, excuse people, don't accuse people falsely and be content with your paycheck. John the Baptist hush. Anyway. Be content with what you have, according to the writer of Hebrews. Not sure who wrote this, but he said this. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Here's what Paul said in Philippians 4:11 through 13. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned. This is something Paul learned. He had to learn this through experience. I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances I know what it's like to be in need, and I know what it's like to have plenty. He said, I know what it's like to be eating steak, and I know what it's like to have to eat hot dogs. I know what it's like to have my pockets full. I know what it's like to not have two nickels to rub it. He said, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We like to quote that verse, but you need to quote the others. That's why he said that verse. The word all is a big thing. Have you ever thought about that? I just started looking at all things are possible to him that believes. I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden. All things work together for good to them that love the Lord and that called according to his purpose. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not to your own understanding and so forth. Uh, All is a big thing. So the second people that are living in a dead end are the people that are working but they're never satisfied. The grass is always greener and they're never content with what they've got. The third group that he talks about is people that have questions and they don't have no answers. Verses 10 through 12. Whatever exists has already been named and what humanity is has been known. No one can contend with someone who is stronger. The more the words, the less the meaning. And how does that profit anyone? For who knows what is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless days that pass, they pass through like a shadow? Who can tell what will happen under the sun after they are gone? Okay, he's really talking about There's so many things in life that make people get stuck because they just don't know the answer to it. The tough questions of life. I I preached a series last year or two years ago sometime about the questions Jesus asked. Now, we think that Jesus was asked the most questions. Jesus asked more questions than people asked him, at least that's recorded anyway. And when they asked Jesus questions, he didn't always answer them. Or he'd answer them on conditions. I'll answer yours, you answer mine. That that kind of stuff. There's a lot of questions that we don't have in life and God doesn't give us any answers for. The British poet Joseph Addison said this, there's three great things everybody needs to have a happy, fulfilled life. You've got to have something to do, you've got to have somebody to love, and you've got to have something to hope for. And we find all three of those in Jesus. He's given us something to do, we love him because he first loved us, and he is our hope, our peace, our future. So we all have it in Jesus. But there's a lot of people that can't go in life because they don't know. They, they're still stuck with some things they can't get answers to. Psalm 13 was this. It was, I call it the, the how long psalm. Psalm 13 said this, How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord? Number two, How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? Number three, how long will I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? Number four, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? He just, one after another, how long, how long? When He's looking for answers. He's looking for answers. Even Jesus, when they, he told them about his second coming and all, and they said, when's this going to happen? He said, I don't know that no man knows the day or the hour. He doesn't even tell us the answer. So life is difficult, and you can start getting in your mind if you don't have the right answer for everything. It can mess you up and, and stop you from going. It'll be a dead end for you. Let me give you three things you need to do with your mind. You need to feed on your, the mind on the right things. In Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of a good report, if there be any virtue and there be any praise, think on these things. You've got to program your mind to think on the right things. You've got to cast out things in your mind that are bringing you down, Second Corinthians 10:5, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. You've got to get rid of some of the garbage the enemy's putting in your mind. And you've got to not dwell on the past, the failures, regrets, and all that. Philippians three thirteen and 14 says this. With this one thing I do, I forget those things which are behind me, reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So you're not going to get every answer in this life. There's going to be, we're still seeing through a glass darkly. And so you can't let that stop you. Solomon said there's three roadblocks, three dead ends. People that are blessed financially or prosperous and they never enjoy it. People that are never satisfied or content, they're looking for the next big thing's going to bring them that contentment and satisfaction and they never find it. And people that are looking for answers and they're just not all the answers. God's not giving us the answers and it shuts them down and they can't go forward. I'm going to close with a Bible story. We were in a Wednesday night class. One of the lessons we were teaching was little people with big lessons. We were talking about people that are no names in the Bible that if you really study a little bit about their life, you can get a big lesson out of it. Here's one that might could have fit in there, but most people know who this is. When David was growing up, his best buddy, his best friend was a man named Jonathan. Jonathan and him were just like that. Jonathan was King Saul's boy. So him and Jonathan played together and hunted together and did everything together because they were real tight. But Jonathan and David both knew that David was going to be the king. So Jonathan's kind of the tough pickle. My daddy's the king, but my best friend, God's got him to be the next king. So, but they were very close. They made a covenant together with each other. They would always be close no matter what happened. Well, years later, Jonathan got killed in war. And his daddy, King Saul, killed himself. So David steps up to the throne. King Saul had a, a servant that worked for him named Zeba. And he called Zeba and he said, you were Saul's number one servant. Do you know anybody that I can bless of the household of Saul for Jonathan's sake? Because me and Jonathan were good friends and I'll never forget him. Anybody you can think of, he said, well, Jonathan had a boy. Jonathan had a boy that lived in a little town called Lodabar. He was crippled, crippled in both feet. David said, go get him and bring him to me. And he told Mephibosheth was his name. He said, Mephibosheth, I loved your daddy, Jonathan. We were best of friends. You're going, to st- you're going to come and eat at my table the rest of your life. I'm going to take care of you, this little crippled boy. That was a wonderful thing, and he was overwhelmed with it. Well, he also told him, he said, I'm going to give you your granddaddy, Saul. I'm going to give you all his land. And he said, Ziba, I want you and your boys to farm the land and take care of it for Mephibosheth. He said, yes, sir. Well, things went on for a while. But David eventually had problems. His son Absalom said, I'm going to be the next king. And he divided the country. And he had a big following behind him. And he ran his daddy David out of town. And David took off. And those that were supporting him went with him. And Mephibosheth wanted to go too. But he being a cripple. He had to depend on Zeba to help him. Zeba didn't help him. And Zeba took some food and things out to David out in the wilderness. He said, I brought this to you and brought some donkeys and things for you. Wanted to let you know we're supporting you. We're behind you. And he said, Hey, where's Mephibosheth? He said he didn't want to come. He really didn't want, don't care much about you and all this, kind of let him know that. Mephibosheth stayed home. He said, I'll tell you what, then I'm going to give you all the land that I gave to Mephibosheth. I don't know why David did that, but he did. Make a long story short, Absalom was eventually killed, and so David gets to come back to Jerusalem to sit on the throne again. One of the first people he met was Mephibosheth. And the first thing he said, where were you, boy? Why didn't you come to support me? And I want, I'm going to read it to you. Listen to what it said. Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, also went down to meet the king when he's coming into Jerusalem now. He had not taken care of his feet or trimmed his mustache or washed his clothes from the day the king left. Now he was stinking and not in good shape. He, hadn't, he was mourning all this time until the day he returned safely. When he came from Jerusalem to meet the king. The king asked him, "Why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth?" He said, "My lord, the king, since I am your servant, I'm lame, I'm crippled. I said I'm gonna have my donkey saddled and ride on. To, he was gonna go meet David, so I can go with the king. But Ziba, the one that took care of me, betrayed me. He slandered your servant." To my lord the king he lied to you about me saying i didn't want to come my lord the king is like an angel of god so you do whatever you wish to me is what he's saying all my grandfather's descendants deserve nothing but death from my lord the king because you leave the new king coming down he killed all the relatives but you gave your servant a place among those who eat at your table so what right do i have to make any more appeals to the king And the king said to him, why say more? I order you and Ziba to divide the land. And listen to what Mephibosheth said. He said to the king, let him have all of it. Now that my lord the king has returned home safely, he can have all the land. Here's what I'm saying. It's like the little girl that they asked her to quote the 23rd Psalm and she didn't get it quite right. She said, the Lord is my shepherd. He's all I want. That's what this Mephibosheth said. I don't care about the land. I just want you. We used to sing an old song that said, take this whole world, but give me Jesus. You're not going to find contentment and satisfaction and peace and all in anything but our Lord. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have him than have riches untold. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. I don't know all the words to it, but it says this basically. Than to be the king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. And that's the lesson that Solomon's trying to get across too—that people have hit a dead end in their life and they can't go forward because ain't nothing can satisfy your soul but the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing in this world, material things, all the other things that we think we gotta have. There's a hole in your heart that can only be filled by God. Only be filled by Him. I want you to stand with me before we leave here today. I will make this appeal to you. If you're trying to fill your life with things and looking for the answer to life, you're not going to find it. Jesus came and give his heart and his life for you. Give his life for you that you might have life. Because the road you're on not only is a dead end, it leads to destruction. And it's going to dead end in hell one day. So I just ask you, if you don't know Jesus if you're one of those that's been searching for something and looking for something and never have found that contentment and peace, I offer you Jesus Christ, the cross of Calvary. Would you pray with me? If you need Jesus in your heart, if, you're, if he's knocking on your door, you better answer. If he's convicting you, if he's speaking to you. If not, you may be not ready just yet. But the Holy Spirit's trying to draw you. Heavenly Father, you know every heart and every life. We're all looking for something that's going to bring us the peace, the satisfaction, the contentment that we need in this life. And we find that everything we grab a hold of brings emptiness. I pray for everyone here today. Holy Spirit, if there's some here today, that do not know you, are not in a relationship with you. They're not where they need to be with you. I pray that you get a hold of their heart and their life. Bring them to a place of repentance, brokenness. You can't break us, Lord. You can't ever remake us. I just pray today, God, for every heart and life. hear the voice of God. Thank you, Jesus, for satisfying the longing of my soul. Take this whole world, just leave me with Jesus. That's all I ask. Thank you, Father, for this day. I pray, God, as we leave here today, you would help us to know There's nothing this world has. I'd rather have Jesus than anything else. In your precious name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer for anything, you can come down here too.